0: Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. And as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com.
1: Hi, guys. Nice to be back on. Thanks for having me, Kev. Um, my name's Sam Karp. I'm a Crystal Palace fan. You can find some of my stuff on the Eagles Beak, and my Twitter is at sam double underscore Karp.
2: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back on as well. Uh, Joshy here, Manchester United fan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DocJ And I sort of do various different little things here and there, podcasts, blogs and things like that.
0: Awesome well thanks so much for joining me today guys folks at home if you listen to the end of last episode you may be surprised that we're recording one this week but weirdly a lot has been happening in the Premier League we'll start off with two managerial hires Roy Hodgson at Watford who of course Sam will be familiar with and then Frank Lampard who is joining Everton respectively that second one not fully announced yet but by the time you're hearing this it sounds like it will be so I just wanted to get your guys initial thoughts on, on who you think is a better fit for their new club.
1: Yeah, I can um I can obviously speak a little bit more from experience about Hodgson. Um, obviously left Palace at the end of last season and to be perfectly honest, I was actually a little bit surprised um by the appointment, partially because I didn't necessarily expect him to take another job, although it's sort of worth pointing out that when he left Palace last year he was about the only person Who didn't refer to it as his retirement. I think all the media and everyone else was uh, very quick to kind of describe it as that so maybe he did always feel like he had a little bit more to give but I was also sort of surprised because it was it seems like quite a sensible appointment which you don't necessarily associate with Watford. Um, I certainly didn't think that they've got a better chance of staying up with him than they did with Ranieri who didn't really seem like the right fit in the first place especially after kind of how things went, um, went with Fulham. Uh, and out of the managers that are available, I'm not sure they could have really got anyone better. Um, you know, under what uh, Watford have really looked like an absolute rabble over the past months. And kind of like they're crying out for someone who's going to instill a bit of discipline, stop them conceding goals and kind of structure the team in a way that gets the best out of, you know, players like Emmanuel Dennis and Ismail Assar when he returns. Um, and Hodgson's probably the man to do that, I think. Um you know, when he first joined Palace, we actually lost our first few games. But then there was an international break where he kind of got to work with the squad on things like shape, structure, style of play. Um, and he's already kind of been afforded that with Watford because of, you know, this break that we were talking about before we came on air. So there's kind of a chance for him to sort of hit the ground running there in that respect. Um, the only thing I would say is that with Palace, he kind of, he actually inherited a squad that was sort of in a false position when he came in. Um I know there was always a lot made of the fact that he kept us up after you know no one had ever done it, staying up after seven games, seven defeats, uh, seven games without a goal, I think it was. Um, but it was still a squad with players like Zaha, Benteke, Johan Kabai, Andros Townsend, a fit and motivated Mamadou Sakho at the time. So there was like a really good spine of a Premier League team there, I think, when he came in. Um, I'm not sure it's the same with this Watford squad. Um I don't necessarily know enough about this Watford squad, um, but it just doesn't appear to me like it is quite as strong as that one that he did inherit at Palace. So I think this will be more of a challenge for him, and perhaps even more of an achievement if he can keep them up. Um, similarly, there were sort of some signs at Palace last year that maybe his powers might be dwindling ever so si- ever so slightly. Um, yes, I know, he, like he kept us up really comfortably, um, but we also suffered some really heavy defeats. And if Watford are sort of looking to be shored up at the back. Um, then what for fans might not like to be reminded of the fact that, you know, we conceded seven at home to Liverpool last year, I think letting four against Chelsea twice, um, lost three nil at home to Burnley. I seem to remember three nil to a 10, 10 man Aston Villa. Um, so yeah, there were sort of some signs that, you know, while obviously we did stay up and kind of, it was mission accomplished from that perspective, there were sort of some signs of kind of defensive porousness, perhaps creeping in, but, um, but yeah, I'd, I kind of, I, I, I can't decide whether I want him to do well there because Palace and Wat would have, Watford have kind of had a bit of a bit of a sort of Twitter rivalry anyway, let's describe it as that, over the past couple of years just because we've played each other so many times, whether it be in the playoffs or the FA Cup or whatever, and they regularly accuse Wilfred Zaha of cheating. But, um, but yeah, I, I think they've got a much better chance of staying up under him than they did with Ranieri. Um, from the Everton perspective with Lampard, uh, it's kind of hard to be as... I don't know, it's hard to be as positive about it, especially just given from the outside, at least it seems as though he's got the job more based on the fan backlash to Vito Pereira rather than necessarily his ability as a manager, which is still, I still find it quite hard to judge him as a manager. Um, he did a decent job at Derby, but he had a really, really good squad um, for the championship at the time um getting Chelsea into the top four in his first season with the transfer embargo was also a decent achievement but then it all kind of unraveled when there were expectations the following year um so yeah for me he's still a bit of an unknown quantity um and we've also never seen him in a situation like this before um as a manager he's never really been in a position of adversity like the one Everton find themselves in at the moment so it's kind of yeah it's a bit of a gamble to to bring him in and sort of just hope that he's going to turn things around in that respect. Um, you'd imagine he'll give Everton a little bit more freedom, which is different probably to Rafa, which the likes of Richarlison, Damari Gray might enjoy. Um, but yeah, it's hard to predict. I think I think Everton's squad is good enough for them to pull away from where they are now. So if I kind of had to choose between the two appointments, I think you know, I th- I'd still say that Everton are more likely to stay up than Watford. But um i think that will probably be more because of the players that each team has rather than necessarily the managers
2: yeah i mean when yeah, i mean thinking about those two appointments it's kind of two extremes isn't it hodgson being being around the block been loads of uh lots of clubs seventy seventy four years old i mean that's ridiculous you'd have thought he'd have uh wanted to go in and, and chill out somewhere and, and get, you know, and get on with his retirement. But it, I guess it says something about him that he's come back into it. Um, and, and obviously Lampard is, is, is much younger and a lot less experienced. So it's two, two kind of different appointments. And um, I think I, I largely agree with most of what Sam said. Like, you know, I think with, with Hodgson, he you know, is a sensible appointment. He'll come in. He, he's kind of, he'll, he knows what he's doing in terms of coaching things like that, and I think it's a bit like horses of courses. You know, he's a he's a manager that will come in and his aim will be to keep them up. I don't think if you were looking for him to then go on and build something for the long term and all that kind of stuff, I think you'd end up with a with a kind of Palace situation where he he kind of establishes that Premier League um, safety, but then you need somebody else to just kick it up a notch, right? Um, so yeah, that's probably what Watford are hoping for, and then. We'll see if he can pull it off. With Lampard at Everton, I think it's an interesting one. It's probably the first time we can really judge him, right? But Now we can really see what he's all about. Um, just for, for the for the reasons Sam sort of outlined. I mean, he, like 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 what was said earlier. You know, he was all right at Chelsea for a while, and then things started to peter out when when there was some expectation. Everton there will be expectation you they are not a club that is used to sort of being right down in that relegation dogfight so he will need to do something different and I think you know they have got the players that will sort of help them pull away Um, but over time this will be the appointment that where you can really judge what Lampard really is all about as a coach because he's got he's got to turn things around at first but then he will be expected to build that up establish his style coach that team drill those players into a sort of a, a club that's then moving on up the table over the years right if he lasts that long so that's that's the bit where it'll be interesting to see how he gets on because if i'm honest i didn't think he would be somebody that would um would get another job to be honest with you because the chelsea job kind of got in, in, because he was there as a player and I don't think he did much with that team that warranted um, sort of a lot of praise and and yeah so th- I didn't think he'd get a job a bit like Solskjaer actually I was thinking would who would who'd really mm. give Oli, Oli, Oli and Solskjaer a, a go but maybe you'll, you might see Oli pop up somewhere maybe not in the UK but in another country but yeah so it'll be interesting it'll be this is like a true judge because it's not He's got it. Well, I don't know how he's got it because well, he's got it because of the fan backlash as well. So there's going to be <laughs> a lot of expectation from that perspective. So it's a, it's a difficult one to judge. But I think if you just look at who's going to stay up, Everton have the better squad. They've got the better individual players, um, better attacking players. I think that's super important when you when you want to say stay up because you just got to accept that certain matches, if you're not if you're in that sort of bottom half of the table, you will let in goals. But it's in those tight games against people around you where a player like Richarlison can just pull something out of the bag and then, you know, it gets you up the table. So if you're going to talk about staying up, I think Everton will be fine. Watford are obviously much more in danger. But at the same time, with Roy Hodgson has got a manager who's kind of been there, done that. And, and it's, a, it's a sensible appointment and he knows how to work with all sorts of players. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes.
0: Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I I think I thought Lampard would would have to be one of those managers that would be willing to take a championship side, and if he wanted to be in the Premier League again, have to get them up to it himself. But yeah, it seems like uh, the the fan backlash against Pereira was enough to uh, get him the spot there at Everton. And you mentioned the attacking play. They might be getting Donny Van de Beek as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which would probably help their cause. Watford, as you mentioned there earlier, Sam, have some pretty good attacking options, but yeah, their defense has pretty much been tragic since we've started doing this show in 2012. So uh, not expecting that to suddenly turn around to save them here at the last minute, regardless of how good of a job Roy indeed does there. Uh, all right, next I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the transfer window. Uh, the people listening to this, it's probably day of or after as we're recording it. It is the Sunday preceding the final day of the transfer window. And was just curious to this point who you guys think has had the best window thus far.
1: Yeah. Um. For answer that, so you're just your, chat, your mention of the uh, what what for his defense. I mean I remember a stat that I saw flying about this week when Hodgson was appointed that, um, mm. something something along the lines of, they've I think they've had six managers since um since their last Premier League clean sheet, which is just I know there's Ooh. they've obviously been relegated in that time, but it's just it's still crazy to
0: think. The that. one I saw was <laughs> that they haven't kept a clean sheet since before the pandemic. In the Premier League, yeah, just,
1: which is, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's some, something along those lines. Just, yeah, crazy stuff. But, um, but yeah, from a transfer perspective, I think I, it's it's almost hard to say right now because I think the answer could even change with the next twenty-four hours. Because, unlike previous Januarys, it feels like there's some deals still bubbling away beneath the surface. It's kind of been, I don't know, this ja- the January transfer window is always fairly tame these days, I think, because it's you know um, teams are often unwilling to sell the. The price is usually quite high, you know, teams are quite desperate as well, so there's a lot of sort of bargaining that goes on and not a lot of deal-making really, but I think that's been slightly different this time, partially because obviously you've had Newcastle who have had such a significant amount to spend and sort of in keeping with that, it's almost tempting to say Brighton have had the best window because they've somehow managed to fetch £13 million for Dan Byrne, reportedly anyway, Um, but yeah, it has been kind of amusing to watch the Newcastle tax kind of emerge over the course of this month, but yeah, given how much how how little sorry activity does typically happen in this window, it's I actually think that Newcastle have done fairly well. Um, I know I've, as I mentioned before, I know they've got pretty much unlimited resources to work with at the moment, um, but it's still a challenge to bring players in during this window. Um, you know they needed to improve their defence. They've got Kieran Trippier, who played for the Spanish champions last year and is a proven international. Um, and now they've seemingly got Dan Byrne as well, who's also, I think, is an upgrade at centre back. Um, they needed improvements in midfield and they've brought in a Brazilian yeah. international from Leon. Uh, they needed another striker to help Callum Wilson, and they brought in a center forward who has consistently scored more than 10 goals a season for a bottom half team. And, you know, even if he doesn't come off, they've they've weakened a relegation rival in the process. Um so, yeah, I think I think Newcastle, despite all the ridicule, have have had a fairly decent window. Um, they've got players in who are going to improve them and give them a better chance of staying up, I think, which ultimately would have been the aim at the start of it. And, you know, there's still, as I said earlier, 24 hours for them to potentially add more players to that. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say they're kind of, they've had they've been one of the more successful in this window um but I'd also put Villa in there as well um who I think made a couple of opportune signings with Cusino, obviously who I actually wasn't sure of I I wasn't convinced of that signing when it happened but then sort of was immediately proved wrong in his (laughs) sort of 20 minute debut against against United the other week but also Luca Dean who I think's probably perhaps the signing of of the month for me so far um just because you know there were some, some bizarre circumstances which allowed him to leave Everton, um, and he didn't necessarily come cheap. But I think he's consistently been one of Everton's uh, better players since he went there, and also one of the better left backs in the league. Um, and to be honest, if I thought if if I thought that he was going to leave Everton at any point, it probably would have been for a club kind of you know punching in either you know the Europa League or the Champions League places rather than rather than necessarily Villa with with respect to Villa, obviously. But, you know, they aren't quite at that level yet.
2: Yeah, I think those are the two clubs, aren't they, that have had the more kind of significant numbers in terms of incomings and, and also in terms of outlay. Uh, I think Villa have done quite well, actually. I like their, well, not a fan of Villa, obviously. But, you know, if we're talking objectively, they've probably done some good business. And, um, yeah, that they're, they're, they're using that uh, grayish money seemingly quite well obviously no no transfer it can be judged as it happens you've got to judge it a year or two down the line um but yeah and then newcastle they're highly active i think those are the two i think everton have brought in a couple of players but nothing significant from what i can remember from memory um i guess the other significant sort of transfer is Liverpool's, uh Liverpool signing Luis Diaz for I think around fifty million. It's a lot of money. Um I don't know a lot about him, but they're pre- they're pretty they've got a pretty good record with their transfers. Um most of the I would say they've got with under Klopp it's been a pretty good hit rate. I think in, in recent times, probably that Minamono uh chap, but he wasn't that expensive. It was a little bit of a miss. And then mm. in other than that i think they've been pretty hit pretty much hits right turn seems to turn every one of these players into a top notch player so for 50 million um i'm expecting uh, expecting a lot from from him over again over once he settles into the system um so yeah i think you you can't really i would say you can't really look past newcastle and villa in terms of the clubs but i am interested in seeing what this luis diaz is is, is all about uh, at Liverpool for 50 million, so yeah, that's probably way to sum it. Of course, the deadline is tomorrow, right? So, mm. um, oh, as we record it, um, so things could happen. There's obviously a, there's been quite a lot of outgoings in terms of loans from United. Van der Beek being another one that may also uh, head out. Um, so yeah, and maybe with that happening, you might see something elsewhere so yeah the, the, this one there could be some interesting stuff happening tomorrow but it's a January transfer window it's no longer one of those where people get really excited so I would have thought it would still be a similar discussion to what we just had even at the end of tomorrow
1: yeah I was going to jump in actually just um me think about uh Tottenham's window so far because it just <laughs> it feels like every sort of turn you've been You've been trumped, and now, I don't know, I just can't, I can't really keep up with it. It just feels like it. Um, <laughs> it feels like you're finally maybe making some sort of headway, with some signings at least.
0: Yeah, you definitely cannot be blamed for not keeping up <laughs> with everything that's been happening at Tottenham. Uh, so clearly we spent the majority of the month, up until I think the 20th or the 22nd, uh, trying to get Adama Traore in to be a right wing back, a position that he's not profoundly great in, um, while also trying to get rid of Steven Bergvine, who's an actual winger, so that inherently didn't really make much sense. Uh, But then Luis Diaz, apparently Paratici and his vaunted network of contacts, found out that Porto were in much worse financial shape than a lot of people knew. There's even reports that Liverpool had to pay some of the money before the medical was completed so that they could pay off some debts so they wouldn't be kicked out of Europe for the next few seasons. So apparently we had this kind of inside info about how, how rough Porto's finances were, and that's why we thought we could get him. Somehow this information shows up at Liverpool. They, they might have just had their own people that knew that as well, or the agent may have reached out. But anyway, Daniel Levy mentioned trying to sue Liverpool for them finding out this piece of information, which led to them pursuing him. So you spend a month chasing Adama Traore. You give up on him to chase Luis Diaz, and then you lose out on Luis Diaz. And this all happens with four days left in the window. Not ideal. Um, so while Paratici has not been particularly inspiring as director of football, save for hiring Antonio Conte, which was huge, uh, he just rings up his old club, Juventus, and is like, can we have a winger slash center forward and a midfielder? And fortunately, they had Kulisevsky and Bentecourt, both who they were trying to ship because they were bringing Vlahovic and Denis Zakaria. So uh, weirdly lucked out in the end. And, and Joshi, you mentioned outgoings. It's a, a little bit of a ridiculous list. So it sounds like Ndombele is off to Lyon. La is off to Villarreal. Brian Hill is off to Valencia. It doesn't sound like we're going to get rid of Bergvine, even though we're bringing in another winger, which personally I like because I think he's he's really talented and brings something different to the squad. But that's that's kind of the the quick synopsis of what's going on. We were one of 10,000 clubs reportedly offered to Dembele Dembélé, but it sounds like he'll be off to PSG. But uh, yeah, a very weird window where we have empirically gotten better. I think the window itself has been a success, but the way in which it happened has decreased confidence in Perotici and Levy and Co. So that's that's kind of where we're at there. You guys already mentioned some some pretty uh, big signings to some of these clubs. If you had to narrow it down to like what you think the best individual signing has been thus far this window, who would it be? There?
1: Yeah, I think I think I'd go back to Luca Dean again, um, just purely because of sort of the things I said before, just about you know him. The fact that he was, you know, one of, I think he's, well, I think he's probably one of, he's been one of the best players outside that sort of traditional top six, you know, from the other 14, Um, his set, his set piece delivery is, is great. Um, And yeah, it was just a really opportune move by Villa. Um, And to be honest, I'm still kind of amazed that Everton conspired to lose him in the way that they did, you know, having... And, um, uh, you know, the, the way they sort of backed Rafa Benitez in that kind of, in that row.
0: And, <laughs> and then um, get rid of him two days within, later. Within the
1: space, yeah. Within the space of a few days, they've lost both Dean and Benitez. It just, yeah, it just kind of said a lot about the way that that, that um, Everton Football Club is being run at the moment, I think.
2: Yeah, I think that he's, he's just, it's just that it's just because it was so bizarre. And, and he was pretty much, he's up there with the best sort of left-backs in the league. It was kind of interesting they got him. But I think they've done a good a great deal getting coutinho in i mean in the context of the fact that he's essentially coming in to replace what jack Greilish gave them right and i know it's only alone but he came on against us and, and just and and sorted out the game right and uh it's just he's got that ability in him to to to, to just be a bit of a talisman to a club like that so I think they've done a, I think they've done really well. I, even though it's just alone, I think that could turn out to be a really exciting sign. Again, coming from a f- person who's just not a fan of either the club or the player and I'm trying to be super objective. So <laughs> so uh, for the benefit of the of the podcast so so yeah, but I think we we'll have to go with that.
0: Fair enough. All right, uh, we'll move from there into something a little bit less fun, but at least there's a direction to it now. Uh, after some questionable postponements, shall we say, uh, the Premier League has now implemented a rule that requires you to have at least four COVID-positive players in order to have your match suspended or postponed. And I'm just curious if you guys view this as a positive step, if if you think this will eliminate some of the more questionable ones where it was like compounding injuries, uh, AFCON cards and suspensions and COVID all all into one bundle that were preventing some teams from playing
1: yeah i wonder if there was a particular uh questionable postponement you were thinking of there kev as you (laughs) both in terms of my personal uh... (laughs) opinion and the timing um but yeah I i think it is a step in the right direction really isn't it it's just it just adds a little bit of clarity that we never had before um i was never kind of in that camp that there was this there was this constant line that seems to be peddled on Twitter um, whenever one of these games got postponed that you know they should just play the under 23s and get on with it um, which I just I just don't really follow that line of thought because it just wouldn't have been entertaining for anyone like you know there are teams in the league with different you know quality of squad and some some teams are able to spend a lot more than others and have a lot more squad depth so no one really wants to watch a game where you've potentially got a fully fit Liverpool or City for example playing against Palace's under 23s because their squad, their first team squad has had a COVID outbreak. It's That's kind of where the integrity of the competition, I think, would have broken down and the league ultimately would have lost a bit of value as an entertainment product. So they, yeah, they did sort of need that clarity. And I think it, but I think, as you sort of said, it became clear over the last few weeks that the rules, as they were, just weren't specific enough. They weren't transparent enough for fans either. And teams were just starting to bend them in their favor, which, To be honest, you can't really blame them for right? I mean, everyone was at it. You know, it all sort of came to a fore with Arsenal in the North London derby, but I'm sure that every team behind the scenes was kind of manipulating things in their favour because that's what the Premier League has been built on, right? You're always going to protect your self-interest where you can because, you know, whether whether you're going for the title, the top four or trying to stay up, there's a lot at stake financially and you want your best players available as often as possible. So really it was down to the league to kind of, to put a stop to that and introduce something that was going to kind of finally just, yeah, give everyone give everyone a little bit more clarity over the situation, which, which we just haven't had. Um, because yeah, as, as you mentioned, it felt like teams were getting games postponed because of their injuries or other absences, which just didn't feel right at all. Um, with this new rule, at least we know that, you know, there has genuinely been a COVID outbreak. It's not teams trying to sort of get around things in any way. Um, And if there are, you know, one, two or three cases, um, it's going to be felt more by those with longer injury lists and maybe lighter squads. But that's just the way it is, unfortunately. And they'll they'll kind of have to find ways to adapt. And, um, you know, also, hopefully, hopefully, you know, it it won't be as much of an issue in the run in, given that I guess cases kind of seem to be trending downwards a bit in the UK. Um, So you'd hope the situation in the Premier League kind of starts to mirror that. And this conversation is kind of one that we just leave behind us in December and I guess the start of January.
2: Yeah, I think the main thing it does is just provide a little bit of, of clarity and consistency for people to interpret the rules so then it, you don't get all this, con- I'm going to be polite and say, confusion. Um, but, I mean, it's just an arbitrary number, isn't it? I don't know how, there's, there's no kind of science behind it. They've just kind of stuck their finger up in the air and gone, yeah, let's go with four, right? I mean, for me, four or two or seven there's a risk of spreading so you just need to get all of these people isolated that's the key piece so um but yeah i guess it it gives a bit of clarity and and there's a line that you can draw and say right you got three (laughs) you've got to play a game you've got four you got 4 you do not get to play a game it it, it just feels arbitrary but it's it's at least clear and then they can just fall back on that as the reasoning behind what games go ahead and what games don't um yeah, I, I don't really have much else to say about it because it's—I it, it, just get drawn into into discussions around COVID and the wider, how it, wider sort of management of it—and then I, I I get very frustrated and start swearing. So I'll um I prob- <laughs> I'll probably leave it. Um, but yeah, I think hmm. the, the the good thing is clarity, and 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 now you can sort of get on with it, and there won't be any of the the stuff that we've seen recently.
0: Yeah, to your point, Joshi, the the arbitrary nature of three to four could lead to situations where a team gets forced to play on, say, the Saturday, and by the Monday they find out that they actually had seven. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh well, then why did we play then? But because of that time delay. But yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. But I agree with both of you. I think it is good to just it, <laughs> whether or not the number is founded in anything other than just picking a number. I don't know, but it still feels a little bit better to have a number that would confirm that you're at least having at least makes it sound like it's a good thing, but that you're having a genuine COVID issue um, at your club and that this is a solution for that and not for all of these kind of ancillary issues. Uh, All right, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue Nile.com. You can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. All right, and we are back. Sam, we'll start off with you. I wanted to really talk about this aftercare program with you that Crystal Palace just launched. For those that haven't seen it, go look it up. We're about to talk about it a little bit here, obviously, but the short version is. That if a player leaves the academy, and even in the press release, it left a little bit room open for for players in the first team. But it, once players leave Crystal Palace, they'll have a three-year period in which they'll still be receiving support from the club, helping them figure out what to do post-football. So I was just curious if you have any more information on that, or, or just how proud you are that Crystal Palace have spun up an initiative like this.
1: Yeah, it actually kind of surprised me that this was being billed as the first time that a club has done this sort of thing. Um because I just can't believe that it's not been done already. It just seems like some. It just seems so normal and almost like a basic responsibility that clubs should have, um, which probably speaks to just how overdue it is. And um, yeah, I guess I'm I'm proud that Palace are the first to do it. We've Always been quite proud of our academy generally, and it's sort of a massive part of our marketing. You know, we put Wilfred Zahar famously on every single piece of you know marketing that goes out um you know nathaniel klein's another one that's come through victor moses over the years so yeah it's kind of it's something which can which is consistent with our identity i suppose and you know whether, whether you're a united fan like joshie spurs like yourself Kev, or palace like me we've all heard loads of names over the years who are supposedly the next big thing and then you kind of you never hear of them again um so there you know there are so many players in academies across the country who have dedicated their lives to football but we know that only a handful of them are going to make it not only at their own clubs, but as a, as a professional in general. So, you know, having not gone through that process myself, I can kind of only imagine that it must be incredibly hard for those players who are released, who are told that they aren't going to be kept on after all that commitment, all that time, um, you know, huge chunks of, you know, their lives basically. And you can only imagine how lost in the world they probably feel when that journey does come to an end or when they're told that that journey is coming to an end. Um, so yeah, we've re- we've read plenty of stories about academy players who have been released, and because and because they haven't known where to go, you know whether they, you know they, have a bit, and because they haven't necessarily had the kind of right education during that time trying to become a professional footballer, they have kind of spiraled into other things like depression. Sometimes the situations are even more tragic than that. So, so hopefully something like this will be able to, to help those youngsters see that you know football isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all they can find a different career path if being a professional doesn't quite work out and clubs are there to actually help them so yeah I, I think it is a really positive step and hopefully other clubs are looking at this and it can kind of be a catalyst for them to do the same because yeah as I said at the start to be quite frank I think these clubs have a responsibility to these to these kids to do that because you know they're giving them these kids are giving the club their service for however many years trying to make it. Um, so, you know, I think it should only be a basic responsibility for these clubs to at least help them with the next steps. If they aren't, if they aren't going to keep them on beyond that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I wouldn't be surprised if very quickly, we see a lot of clubs kind of cloning this program. Um, Cause this feels like one of the things where not doing it saves you a little bit of money, but it does so much more. It could potentially do so much more damage, not having something like this. Than the money it would cost to just make sure that all these players are in the right state of mind and, and have a promising future outside of football after leaving academies. Um, the other question I wanted to talk to you about was Donny Vandebeek. I told you midweek when I was inviting you on that I wanted <laughs> to talk about it. It sounds like you won't be getting him, but my main question the whole time was the crystal palace fans ever really want him because you currently have Connor Gallagher, obviously in fantastic form whether or not you'd be able to get him after this incredible year, TBD. But I was just curious if that was a player that you guys were interested in or if you'd be more than happy to just let Gallagher keep kind of doing what he does.
1: Yeah, it was a really weird one. And to be honest, it felt like a really familiar transfer saga for us in the sense that it was one of those that it felt like it was never going to happen despite how much reliable people were telling us that it was going to happen. So when it emerged yesterday that Everton were interested and it just felt like, ah, oh, yes, that's that's about right. Um, I don't know, just Donny van der Beek just doesn't feel like the type, the calibre of player who ends up at Palace. He's a little bit too high profile for us, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's a hard one. I've kind of, there were some, I think you, there was, yeah, there were very kind of, Two distinct camps there was the people that really 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 wanted him and thought he'd be a great addition to the squad but then you had people that really 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 didn't want him and just you know thought it'd be a waste of money and a waste of our time um there was not really any in between um it was just a very sort there were two extremes basically um and I've no idea if I was that excited about Vanderbilt joining to be honest I, I know it's easy to say that after after the event now that we've um reportedly missed out on him but I think I was curious more than anything um because there isn't really enough evidence to know if he is actually a good Premier League midfielder yet. Um, you know, he's been starved at Football at United, barely played a game this season, and I've always kind of felt that United fans sort of project some sort of hope onto him in a way. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of a similar thing that we had with like Max Meyer at Palace. Obviously, not quite as high profile, but he he arrived like a similarly really good reputation. Um, a good rep, European European player with a good reputation. Uh, he struggled to get into the team at first, and when he did, like look decent, but never really properly grasped his opportunity to prove that he should be playing instead of those people, instead of the incumbents, the players that were holding the position at that time. Um, but our fans still tried to convince themselves that you know because of the reputation that preceded him, he was the answer to our problems, and it was the manager's fault for not playing. And so. Yeah, with Van der Viek, I was kind of I was kind of split between the idea that yes, he would undoubtedly bring some more quality to Marvin Fields, some more balance while James McArthur and Jack Coyote are out. Um but then you just look on the other side of that, I was wondering in you know, it 'cause I think United wanted wanted the loan fee, there was talk that they wanted um I mean, these are all reports, but there's reports that Everton are going, to be playing, are going to be paying his full wage. It's a lot of money for kind of, you know, what, 15 games for the rest of the season. It's not really enough time for someone who hasn't been playing to get up to speed to have that much of an impact. And then at the end of the season, you just kind of send them back to their parent club. So, so yeah, and as you said before, it kind of it could have quite easily stunted the stunted the good stuff we have going on with Gallagher at the moment. Perhaps stunted Eze's comeback as well, who... Is still kind of trying to feel his way back into things. so, so yeah, two sides to it, really. I mean, i I'd, I'd, I'd have welcomed him if he had come. Um, I think it would have been a bonus, but at the same time, yeah, i'm I'm not gussed. We've missed out on him because I think we do have options. So, yeah, having said, there were two extremes to the argument, and no one sat in between. I am actually one of the few people who actually sits in between. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, but but you're probably you've probably judged it about right. I'm a united fan who sits in the camp of. I just don't see what people see in him. I mean, I do see what people see in him, but they like you said project a lot onto him when I don't see the kind of impact that you'd think he should be having, right? When he comes on even for a half or for, I've only ever seen him play 45 minutes, con- well, I've never seen him um really impact games properly. I just I just think he is a one of he's one of those players that's a system player. Like he's in the Ajax system with those players who all play the same within that system, you know, he, he probably he looked fantastic, and as did all of them. But if you think about it, those players that have left the lit, um the Frankie De Jong, uh, this chap, but even ZH to a certain yeah. extent, yeah. I don't think any of them have really gone on to show that they are one of the top-tier players within their positions, which you, you kind of expected from Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Ligt, definitely. Um, and Ziyech as well, you kind of expected a bit of that. I didn't expect that from Van der Beek, but I just think he's a, that kind of system player. And in the Premier League, it moves so fast. And it, it, it's it's just, I just don't think he, he he just needs a lot around him. to People playing on the same kind of, Level, of him, level as him within a system where they all know what they're doing. And United is a complete shambles at the moment. So he's, <laughs> we don't really have much of a system. And the one player who has been consistently playing at a high level is Bruno Fernandes, who essentially plays in Donny Van der Beek's best position. So there's not much you're going to do there. So for me, I've never been one of those guys who's kind of gone, oh, why are we not playing Van der Beek? I mean, there's a reason why He wasn't playing under Oli. I just don't think that was one of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's signings. It was just sort of brought in. And there's a reason why Big Ralph isn't playing him, right? And he's now going out on loan. He's clearly not showing it in training for the systems that um, Solskjaer and um, uh, Rangnick want to play. And that's saying something when the people ahead of you are Fred and McTominay. Right, because Pogba's been injured and Matic. I mean, that mm. is a just a shocking. Because your trio point is you could play midfielders.
0: Because you could play Bruno and him rather than playing two defensive in Fred and McTominay? You
2: I mean, you could play if, if Van der Beek was showing enough, he could come in and apparently he could sit in that kind of in that two behind um Bruno Fernandez if you're gonna play a three man midfield, right? So him and Fred or him and McTominay, or him and Matic. But it, he's clearly not good enough to usurp one of them because they're just so scared about playing just a single one of those three, because we just don't. Basically, Fred and McDominay, if you combine them, is what a good central midfielder should be doing in that position. Except we have two players doing it, so you can't drop one of them, and it becomes difficult. And Van der Beek isn't good enough to be that other single person either. So, yeah, I, I think I don't think you've missed out. To be honest, I think Pal- the way Palace play. He, I just don't think he would fit in that. He might fit in at Everton. It's just a kind of a, he needs to get out and have a fresh start. Let's see what he can do. I'm not gutted that he's going. Um, that being said, I'm kind of gutted that the other three are staying. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: we do need to do <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, go in for one of them then, I suppose, or now that we're trying to sign every central midfielder, maybe you should get like a winks or something off of a, off of us there but yeah no I think those are all excellent points and I was indeed going to ask you your opinion on Van de Beek so I appreciate you just kind of uh, jumping into that on your own. Uh, next question I had for you is about the top four. So last week we had the show where, you know, now everybody's reached the halfway point of their season. Some people are five matches past it, but everyone's now reached that point. Um, and a lot of people were sounding confident that Tottenham might be able to get that top four spot. Obviously, that would be at the expense of Manchester United. Would that represent a big surprise to you? Are United fans still expecting that you'll get top four this season? Or with the managerial shift and everything going on behind the scenes at the club, would it not? really be that big a shock to miss out.
2: Yeah, I mean I don't think it would be a massive shock to miss out the way we're playing. Um last I know we've picked up a few couple of wins, but and we've got I think uh, some some games in hand on on some of the teams around us, but then other teams have games in hand on us. I just I, it just wouldn't be a shock just because at just how poor this team is playing and it's not it, it's not just the the big things where we're talking about missed chances and creating chances and all that kind of stuff. It's the little things. The passing is so sloppy. It's unbelievable. It's something that just has been getting on my nerves for so long. It's so bad. The team is so poor. Like they just think um that if you hit a red shirt or you hit a player in the team, that's great. You know, you've done your job with that pass. There's no thought process into actually it needs to go ahead of them. It needs to go onto his right foot, it needs to go onto his left foot. It's you know, it, it, or let's not let's not underhit it, or you know, I, I just it's just so poor, and these are basic things. So when you're talking about basics at that level, and then we talk about the pressing is so disjointed, which Ranit was supposed to be coming and sort out, um, defensively, we're we're better under Ranit, but of course, uh, against Villa, we again showed the, the our potential to absolutely screw things up. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I wouldn't be shocked if we don't make top four. Of course, I wouldn't be happy about it. You know, the players we have in the squad, um, we should be doing a lot better. I just think to be, genuinely think, and I think one one of the questions later was where would I hope that we upgrade? Is in central midfield when your midfield is so poor, it, uh, in, in, in and it's such a key area, central midfield when it's so bad everyone around you is impacted. The defenders drop a, uh, that much deeper. Um, the wing backs don't push up as much as they should be doing, or the full backs don't push up. You don't get the kind of penetration through the midfield into the attacking areas. You see players like Cristiano dropping deep, Bruno Fernandes dropping deep because the likes of Fred and McTominay and Matis just don't have that passing ability. So it really impacts everywhere. And and that's it's such a huge deal for us at the moment. So. Um yeah, I, I think we're the league probably represents where we are. Um, you know, I think we we'll be challenging, but I wouldn't be surprised if again we hit a run of um fixtures where we lose three or four in a row. I mean, actually when Ralph Ragnick came in, I looked at fixture list and just went, This is the perfect fixture list for him to bed in because on paper um it was we we, we don't put, we weren't playing a top six team until uh, March and of course we've dropped points anyway we've lost games um, and then we'll hit March and then we I think we play like we play Liverpool, City um, Chelsea, whatever I think all in, in the space of a month or something like that, that'll be fun and, then, and, and, and Spurs, you know we're playing people around us so are we going to be good enough to get points out of those games I um, doubt it and will we be embedded in that fourth place position by then? I hope so. But yeah, so I think, yeah, I'd, I just don't, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't make that top four. Um, and, and given the way that the team is playing, I'm not sure that I, I'd be, I mean, I'd be unhappy about it. But yeah, it would just be one of those things. Again, you know, we, we're getting used to it, to be honest.
0: Gotcha. Uh, And then we'll finish up with a far more serious topic, uh, which is the allegations about uh, Mason Greenwood. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of information still going to come out about this, so I'm not expecting you to to know every detail of it since no one does. But Manchester United as a club have already responded by banning him from training and from playing while we try to get all of that information. I was just curious, uh, from the fan perspective, what goes through the minds of of Manchester United fans when they see this horrible act being accused of one of their players?
2: Um, honestly, if uh, you know, obviously it's just allegations at the moment, but the evidence seems pretty damning. <laughs> Got no no two ways about it. Just whatever needs to be done to him needs to be done. I'm talking not as a football fan, as a human being, uh, not really, don't really care about his career or anything like that. What about this girl that he's been allegedly doing these things to? Of course, there's that 1% chance or however many percent chance that there's something else going on and it's been faked or something like that. But you're clutching, right? My instant kind of um, reaction is just, just disgusting. Honestly, end him. I'm, I'm kind of done, right? This is, uh, there's not much else I can say, but in truth be told, I haven't gone into social media or anywhere else to look at the details. Or even, you know, apparently there's a there's a video clip I haven't seen, haven't listened to it though. I've read a transcript, um, not a video clip, um, an audio clip. Um, and then there were pictures, or I think there were pictures. Uh, again, I've just seen stills. Maybe there was a video, I don't know. But ultimately, you know, I'm not approaching this as a football fan. Um, you know, then because if you approach it as a football fan, you're going to say things that just not not relevant right now, you know. Because I've seen people say things like, "Oh, he's ruined his career." Uh, Who cares about that right now? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a girl or a woman that he's done some pretty horrific things to. So that's really far more important. So for me, you know, of course, if, if it comes out that he hasn't done all these things, then fair enough. But at the moment, the evidence is super is, is damning. And yeah, I'm just. Um, actually, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what else to say, really. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. disgusting from what I've seen. And, and, and actually, if I'm really truthful, I haven't been through social media because I don't want to see it, right because this kind of stuff is not, it's not really a Sunday afternoon reading, to be honest. And, yeah. um, I've just, I've only picked up stuff from my WhatsApp group. So, um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that that's really where I stand. Um, I, 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 I'm pretty angry to be honest that he, you know. He represents the club and, and is doing that kind of stuff, uh, but more more sympathetic and, and hoping that this uh, woman is, is is okay and she gets the help that she needs.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And you're right. There, there have been loads of discussions about what this means for his footballing future and stuff like that, same way there were with um, Mendy at Manchester City at the same time, where people were like, oh, what does this mean? Is he, When's he going to be back? Or, Do they have to sell him or is he just not available? And those aren't just... Those just aren't important questions in a situation like this. So,
2: mm. I mean, I think I would have that discussion once everything has come out, right? And we know where we where we stand. In, I, I don't mind saying, but it will be in a retrospective manner in the sense that, what an idiot. Do you know what I mean? But right now, you just hope that everything is sorted with this, the girl is safe and all that kind of stuff. He should not represent the club. So I'm very happy the club have come out and and been very definitive on that front um and then and then of course he has to go through due process and and gets his um you know fair shot at a trial and all that kind of stuff but right now you know i mean evidence is pretty pretty kind of strong right so i'm not sure what is going to let him off and the, and yeah you, you just got to go with you know, it doesn't matter that he's a footballer that plays for Manchester United. You know, if, if this was just a young guy who did it elsewhere and he got caught out, then that exact whatever happens to that person needs to happen to, to, to Mason Greenwood. And actually, probably more because of the position that he's in. Um, but I don't know the law and I don't know how that will work. So, um, so yeah, I, I just pretty... Actually, devastating, you know, as in just like really si- sickening. Really, to be honest yeah. with you, just think like if that's my, if that was my cousin, or I don't have a sister, but you know I've got cousins, or if that was a friend of mine or something like that. Oh, this just pretty horrible.
0: Yeah, definitely an awful situation, and I think you've uh, stated your case very well there. And I think that's probably how a lot of people are feeling. It's just that it's disgusting. Hopefully, he didn't do it. Evidence is certainly mounting, and. Uh, we, we can address all of that more as, uh, you know, actual sentences and stuff like that if, if they happen, when they happen. Uh, we will try to drag things back towards football uh, in player watch here, uh, where I just wanted to ask you guys with just the day left in January as we record, what, what position do you most hope your club uh, will address before the window closes?
1: Yeah, I I can't see Palace doing anything to be honest. Um, but Van der Beek, things have been pretty quiet this January, and it feels like we're waiting until the until the summer to strengthen again. Um, there's been talk of us trying to make J P. Mateta's loan move permanent, which would be quite a turnaround, given it was only the start of this month that he was being linked with a move to St Etienne, uh, amid reports that Vieira didn't really rate him. So so yeah, fair play to him for his recent performances, he's scored a few goals and just kind of, yeah, turned that around and has won a few people over. Um, If you sort of ask me where I hope we strengthen, I'd say the midfield, despite, again, saying before that Palace didn't necessarily need Van der Beek. Um, But we have been quite reliant on a 34-year-old, James MacArthur, a 32-year-old Jake Kriarte, whose contract is up in the summer, um, and obviously also Conor Gallagher, who will who be, presumably be going back to Chelsea in a in a few months, and probably, I'd imagine staying there and going in and around their first team squad. So, um, so yeah, midfield would be the place. But um, but yeah, I think that can that can and probably will wait until the summer now.
2: Yeah, United. I mean, who? Where do I hope we strengthen? Um, central midfield. I talked about it earlier, um, and and in that sort of more defensive sitting position, someone who can pass it about and also do that sitting role. It's a lot to ask, obviously, but there are players out there that can do that. I just don't see us doing any business tomorrow. Um, I think we're saving it up for a summer sort of spend uh, what with a new manager potentially coming in as well, unless uh, kind of somebody pops up in the last minute who is on our kind of top target list. I don't see us doing any business. And that's also highly unlikely, obviously. Our top targets tend to be players who aren't going to, uh, who who, who clubs don't want to leave, uh, let loose in sort of January. So, um, yeah, I don't see us doing any business. But uh, if we do, I hope it's in central midfield.
0: Well, as I said before, Tonnen way too many central midfielders now. So uh, get, get on the horn if you really yeah, want. We
2: them. want some quality in central midfield.
0: That's entirely different. <laughs> uh, also, earlier when you're talking about Donny Van de Beek and you were talking about systems and patterns of play, that is how Conte plays. And we do need a more creative option there. So maybe long term, that's a thing that could be looked at. Uh, we'll wrap up with match previews. We've obviously had this random international break, which even before the show, we were all discussing why it's even happening right now. Obviously, CONCACAF uh, qualifiers happening at the same time as AFCON maybe being it. Um, I think South America is also doing their uh, internationals, which is why I like Luis Diaz is is over there and, and it sounds like the same for Rodrigo Bentacor who's about to join Tottenham, but uh, th- we're going to have actual matches <laughs> in, in the FA Cup here at least, here at the weekend. So I was curious we'll start off with you, Sam, to talk about Crystal Palace. So you're going to be hosting Hartlepool. Are we thinking Crystal Palace going to take the Cups a little bit seriously this year?
1: Yeah, I really hope so. Um, I'm looking forward to this one, actually. Um, last time we played Hartlepool was 2004, I believe. I've never seen us play Hartlepool before. Um, Sellers Park was sold out two weeks ago for this. Hartlepool obviously be bringing a load of fans. Uh, I think it's something up around 5,000. So, yeah, it should be a, a really good day, a really good atmosphere. And looking forward to hopefully getting along if my own injury allows. Um, and yeah, I guess it's, it's a chance for Eze to get more minutes for us. Um, we'll maybe see some of our academy players on the bench too. But I also, you know, I hope we take it pretty seriously. Um, because as you say, Kev, it's been quite a while that Palace have had a cup run. Um, not really since that 2016 final, which I. Insert you gif. <laughs> yeah, which I presume Joshi also remembers all too well. But, um, but yeah, it will be. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good chance for us. And you can, based on the team that Vieira played or started against against Millwall in the last round I think it's it's also a competition that he wants to go far in. so so yeah hoping we take it seriously Hartlepool obviously be there to try and cause an upset as well um but yeah you know win this and all of a sudden you're into the fifth round not too far away from the kind of last eight etc so so yeah looking forward to a good day and hoping slash expecting um yeah a win (laughs)
0: All right, and Josh, you're going to be hosting Middlesbrough, who I actually can't pronounce, unlike apparently Hartlepool, my bad. Uh, what do you think we'll see in this one?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a home FA Cup tie against a team in the championship. You, as a Man United sort of fan, you expect us to come out and put in a performance that gets us the win, especially with the players that we've got and the break that we've, we're, we'll have, we will have had by then. Um that being said, as I mentioned earlier, we're not playing that well. Teams do get at us, even at Old Trafford. You know, it's, not like, um, it's not like it's not a fortress by any stretch of the imagination. And Middlesbrough are in pretty good form. I think eight wins out of their last ten. So it's eight wins, a draw, and a loss in their last ten uh, matches in all competitions. So doing all right. Sixth in the championship. So it's not like they're mugs. So I'm sure they fancy their chances given the way we're playing. So that could be a pretty good cup tie for the neutral or, you know, non-United fans to sort of maybe tune into and watch because it's just one of those that, um, you know, you can just see Middlesbrough coming and doing something at Old Trafford. I hope not. Um, but yeah, yeah, as you can tell, I'm not super confident with this team at the moment. So uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Obviously FA Cup, good opportunity for for, for us because we're not going to win the Champions League. We're not going to win the league, so it's the last opportunity rather rather than a good opportunity. So we really need to, to hopefully, hopefully we do approach it with the right attitude, get that win, and then and move on to the next round.
0: Yeah, and I will say, I always think that fans are very foolish when they mock or cheer uh, other big clubs being knocked out of the cup because. It is very much in Tottenham's interest for you to have a very deep cup run and have your attention split between the two. So, here's to all the best in your cup uh, exploits the remainder of the season. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but this is the thing, right? If you want, you want, you as a Spurs fan want us to go further in and also in the Champions League and then maybe get knocked out in the semis or whatever so that we, we take our eye off the league. But when we get knocked out, obviously you can laugh because it's kind of like, well, you know, you're rubbish. (laughs) So you sort of, both sides of it, you're kind of all right with both sides of it.
0: Oh, so I can't have a cake and eat it too moment. All right, Uh, quarterfinals, quarters or semis. Uh, (laughs) We'll we'll leave things there. Uh, If you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time
1: yeah cheers kev cheers joshy always good to chat with you both um if anyone out there would like to read or listen to any more of my stuff you can find me at sam double underscore cop
2: yeah thanks guys always always enjoy coming on on the pod um you can find me on twitter at doc j underscore muc and yeah thanks a lot
0: yeah i'm your host kevin DeVries. you can find me at care you can find the show at epl roundtable on podcast services uh massive thanks to these two for coming on during an air quotes international break (laughs) and folks at home we hope you keep listening